Chapter Three of Susan B. Anthony by Alma Lutz. The Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three Freedom to Speak. Susan was soon rejoicing at the prospect of meeting Lucy Stone and Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune. Mrs. Stanton had invited her to Seneca Falls to discuss with them and other influential men and women the founding of a people's college. Unhesitatingly, she joined forces with Mrs. Stanton and Lucy Stone to insist that the people's college be open to women on the same terms as men. Lucy had proved the practicability of this as a student at Oberlin, the first college to admit women, and was one of the first women to receive a college degree. However, to suggest co-education in those days was enough to jeopardize the founding of a college, and Horace Greeley stood out against them, his baby-like face fringed with throat whiskers getting redder by the moment as he begged them not to agitate the question. The People's College did not materialize, but out of this meeting grew a friendship between Susan, Elizabeth Stanton, and Lucy Stone, which developed the women's rights movement in the United States. Susan discovered at once that Lucy, like Mrs. Stanton, was an ardent advocate of women's rights. Brought up in a large family on a farm in western Massachusetts, where a woman's lot was an unending round of hard work with no rights over her children or property, Lucy had seen much to make her rebellious. Resolving to free herself from this bondage, she had worked hard for an education, finally reaching Oberlin College. Here she held out for equal rights in education, and now, as she went through the country, pleading for the abolition of slavery, she was not only putting into practice women's rights to express herself on public affairs, but was scattering women's rights doctrine wherever she went. Listening to this rosy-cheeked, enthusiastic young woman, with her little snub nose and soulful gray eyes, Susan began to realize how little opposition in comparison she herself had met because she was a woman. Not only had her father encouraged her to become a teacher, but he had actually aroused her interest in such causes as abolition, temperance, and women's rights while both lucy and mrs stanton had met disapproval and resistance all the way she found lucy as well as mrs stanton in the bloomer dress praising its convenience as lucy travelled about lecturing in all kinds of weather climbing on trains into carriages and walking on muddy streets she found it much more practical and comfortable than the fashionable long full skirts. Nevertheless, there was discomfort in being stared at on the streets and in the chagrin of her friends. This reform was much on their minds, and they discussed it pro and con, for Mrs. Stanton was facing real persecution in Seneca Falls, with boys screaming breeches at her 
when she appeared in the street, and with her husband's political opponents ridiculing her costume in their campaign speeches. Both women, however, felt it their duty to bear this cross to free women from the bondage of cumbersome clothing, hoping always that the bloomer, because of its utility, would win converts and finally become the fashion. Susan admired their courage, but still could not be persuaded to put on the bloomer. Fired with their zeal, she began planning what she herself might do to rouse women. The idea of a separate woman's rights movement did not as yet enter her mind. Her thoughts turned rather to the two national reform movements already underway, temperance and anti-slavery. While a career as an anti-slavery worker appealed strongly to her, she felt unqualified when she measured herself with the courageous Grimke sisters from South Carolina, or with Abby Kelly Foster, Lucy Stone, and the eloquent men in the movement. She had made a place for herself locally in temperance societies, and she decided that her work was there to make women an active, important part of this reform. That winter, as a delegate of the Rochester Daughters of Temperance, she went with high hopes to the state convention of the Sons of Temperance in Albany, where she visited Lydia Mott and her sister Abigail, who lived in a small house on Maiden Lane. Both Lydia and Abigail because of their independence, interested Susan greatly. They supported themselves by taking in boarders from among the leading politicians in Albany. They also kept a men's furnishing store on Broadway, and made hand-ruffled shirt-bosoms and fine linen accessories for Thurlow Weed, Horatio Seymour, and other influential citizens. Their political contacts were many and important, and yet they were also among the very few in that conservative city who stood for temperance, abolition of slavery, and women's rights. Their home was a rallying point for reformers and a refuge for fugitive slaves. It was to be a second home to Susan in the years to come. When Susan and the other women delegates entered the convention of the Sons of Temperance, they looked forward proudly, if a bit timidly, to taking part in the meetings. But when Susan spoke to a motion, the chairman, astonished that a woman would be so immodest as to speak in a public meeting, scathingly announced, The sisters were not invited here to speak, but to listen and learn. This was the first time that Susan had been publicly rebuked because she was a woman, and she did not take it lightly. Leaving the hall with several other indignant woman delegates, amid the critical whisperings of those who remained to listen and to learn, she hurried over to Lydia's shop to ask her advice on the next step to be taken. Lydia, delighted that they had had the spirit to leave the meeting, 
suggested they engage the lecture room of the Hudson Street Presbyterian Church and hold a meeting of their own that very night. She went with them to the office of her friend Thurlow Weed, the editor of the Evening Journal, who published the whole story in his paper. Well, in advance of the meeting, Susan was at the church, feeling very responsible, and when she saw Samuel J. May enter, she was greatly relieved. He had read the notice in the Evening Journal and persuaded a friend to come with him. To see his genial face in the audience gave her confidence, for he would speak easily and well if others should fail her. Only a few people drifted into the meeting, for the night was snowy and cold. The room was poorly lighted, the stove smoked, and in the middle of the speeches the stovepipe fell down. Yet, in spite of all this, a spirit of independence and accomplishment was born in that gathering, and plans were made to call a woman's state temperance convention in Rochester with Susan in charge. All this Susan reported to her new friend, Elizabeth Stanton, who promised to help all she could, urging that the new organization lead the way and not follow the advice of cautious, conservative women. Susan agreed, and as a first step in carrying out this policy, she asked Mrs. Stanton to make the keynote speech of the convention. Soon the Women's State Temperance Society was a going concern, with Mrs. Stanton as president and Susan as secretary. There was no doubt about its leading the way far ahead of the rank and file of the temperance movement when Mrs. Stanton, with Susan's full approval, recommended divorce on the grounds of drunkenness, declaring, Let us petition our state government so to modify the laws affecting marriage and the custody of children that the drunkard shall have no claims on wife and child such independence on the part of women could not be tolerated and both the press and the clergy ruthlessly denounced the woman's state temperance society susan however did not take this too seriously familiar as she was with the persecution anti-slavery workers endured when they frankly expressed their convictions now recognized as the leader of women's temperance groups in New York, Susan traveled throughout the state, organizing temperance societies, getting subscriptions for Amelia Bloomer's temperance paper, The Lily, and attending temperance conventions in spite of the fact that she met determined opposition to the participation of women. Impressed by the success of political action in Maine, where in 1851 the first prohibition law in the country had been passed, she now signed her letters, Yours for Temperance Politics. She appealed to women to petition for a Maine law for New York, and brought a group of women before the legislature for the first time for a hearing on this prohibition bill. 
realizing then that women's indirect influence could be of little help in political action she saw clearly that women needed the vote however it was the women's rights convention in syracuse new york in september eighteen fifty two which turned her thoughts definitely in the direction of votes for women it was the first woman's rights gathering she had ever attended and she was enthusiastic over the people she met she talked eagerly with the courageous jewish lecturer ernestine rose with dr harriet k hunt of boston one of the first woman physicians who was waging a battle against taxation without representation with clarina nichols of vermont editor of the windham county democrat and with matilda jocelyn gage the youngest member of the convention all of these became valuable loyal friends in the years ahead susan renewed her acquaintance with lucy stone and met antoinette brown who had also studied at oberlin college and was now the first woman ordained as a minister with real pleasure she greeted mrs stanton's cousin garrett smith now congressman from new york and his daughter elizabeth smith miller the originator of the much-discussed bloomer best of all was her long-hoped-for meeting with james and lucretia mott and lucretia's sister martha c wright only paulina wright davis of providence and elizabeth oakes smith of boston were disappointing for they appeared at the meetings in short-sleeved low-necked dresses with loose-fitting jackets of pink and blue wool shocking her deeply entrenched quaker instincts although she realized that they wore ultra-fashionable clothes to show the world that not all women's rights advocates were frumps wearing the hideous bloomer she could not forgive them for what seemed to her bad taste how could such women she asked herself hope to represent the earnest hard-working woman who must be the backbone of the equal rights movement always forthright when a principle was at stake she expressed her feelings frankly when james mott serving with her on the nominating committee proposed elizabeth oakes smith for president his reply that they must not expect all women to dress as plainly as the friends in no way quieted her opposition to her delight lucretia mott was elected and her dignity and poise as president of this large convention of two thousand won the respect even of the critical press susan was elected secretary and so clearly could her voice be heard as she read the minutes and the resolutions that the syracuse standard commented miss anthony has a capital voice and deserves to be clerk of the assembly not all of the newspapers were so friendly some labeled the gathering a tomfoolery convention of aunt nancy men and brawling women others called it the farce at syracuse but for susan it marked a milestone 
Never before had she heard so many earnest, intelligent women plead so convincingly for property rights, civil rights, and the ballot. Never before had she seen so clearly that in a republic women as well as men should enjoy these rights. The ballot assumed a new importance for her. Her conversion to women's suffrage was complete. This new interest in the vote was steadily nurtured by Elizabeth Stanton, whom Susan now saw more frequently. Whenever she could, Susan stopped over in Seneca Falls for a visit. Here she found inspiration, new ideas, and good advice, and always left the comfortable Stanton home ready to battle for the rights of women. While Susan traveled about, organizing temperance societies and attending conventions, Mrs. Stanton, tied down at home by a family of young children, wrote letters and resolutions for her and helped her with her speeches. Susan was very reluctant about writing speeches or making them. The moment she sat down to write, her thoughts refused to come, and her phrases grew stilted. She needed encouragement, and Mrs. Stanton gave it unstintingly, for she had grown very fond of this young woman whose mental companionship she found so stimulating. During one of these visits, Susan finally put on the bloomer and cut her long, thick brown hair as part of the stern task of winning freedom for women. It was not an easy decision, and she came to it only because she was unwilling to do less for the cause than Mrs. Stanton or Lucy Stone. Comfortable as the new dress was, it always attracted unfavorable attention and added fuel to the fire of an unfriendly press. This fire soon scorched her at the World's Temperance Convention in New York, where women delegates faced the determined animosity of the clergy, who held the balance of power and quoted the Bible to prove that women were defying the will of God when they took part in public meetings. Obliged to withdraw, the women held meetings of their own in the Broadway tabernacle, over which Susan presided with a poise and confidence undreamed of a few months before. A success in every way, they were nevertheless described by the press as a battle of the sexes, a free-for-all struggle in which shrill-voiced women in the bloomer costume were supported by a few male Bettys. The New York Sun spoke of Susan's ungainly form rigged out in the bloomer costume, and provoking the thoughtless to laughter and ridicule by her very motions on the platform. Untruth was piled upon untruth, until dignified ladylike Susan, with her earnest, pleasing appearance, was caricatured into everything a woman should not be. Less courageous temperance women now began to wonder whether they ought to associate with such a strong-minded woman as Susan B. Anthony. There were rumblings of discontent, 
when the Women's State Temperance Society met in Rochester for its next annual convention in June 1853, and Susan and Mrs. Stanton were roundly criticized because they did not confine themselves to the subject of temperance and talked too much about women's rights. Not only was Mrs. Stanton defeated for the presidency, but the bylaws were amended to make men eligible as officers. Men had been barred when the first bylaws were drafted by Susan and Mrs. Stanton because they wished to make the society a proving ground for women, and were convinced that men holding office would take over the management, and women, less experienced, would yield to their wishes. This now proved to be the case, as the men began to do all the talking, calling for a new name for the society, and insisting that all discussion of women's rights be ruled out. In the face of this clear indication of a determined new policy, which few of the women wished to resist, Susan refused re-election as secretary, and both she and Mrs. Stanton resigned. This was Susan's first experience with intrigue, and her first rebuff by women whom she had sincerely tried to serve. Defeated, hurt, and uncertain, she poured out her disappointment in troubled letters to Elizabeth Stanton, who, with the steadying touch of an older sister, roused her with a challenge, We have other and bigger fish to fry. A few months later, Susan was off on a new crusade, as she attended the state teachers' convention in Rochester. Of the five hundred teachers present, two-thirds were women, but there was not the slightest recognition of their presence. They filled the back seats of Corinthian Hall, forming an inert background for the vocal minority, the men. After sitting through two days' sessions and growing more and more impatient as not one woman raised her voice, Susan listened as long as she could endure it to a lengthy debate on the question why the profession of teaching is not as much respected as that of lawyer, doctor, or minister. And she rose to her feet and in a low-pitched, clear voice addressed the chairman. At the sound of a woman's voice, an astonished rustle of excitement swept through the audience, and when the chairman, Charles Davies, professor of mathematics at West Point, had recovered from his surprise, he patronizingly asked, "'What will the lady have?' "'I wish, sir, to speak on the subject under discussion.' she bravely replied. Turning to the men in the front row, Professor Davies then asked, "'What is the pleasure of the convention?' "'I move that she be heard,' shouted an unexpected champion. Another seconded the motion. After a lengthy debate, during which Susan stood patiently waiting, the men finally voted their approval by a small majority— and Professor Davies, a bit taken aback, announced, The lady may speak. 
"'It seems to me, gentlemen,' Susan began, "'that none of you quite comprehend "'the cause of the disrespect of which you complain. "'Do you not see that so long as society says "'woman is incompetent to be a lawyer, minister, or doctor, "'but has ample ability to be a teacher,' Every man of you who chooses this profession tacitly acknowledges that he has no more brains than a woman. And this, too, is the reason that teaching is a less lucrative profession. As here, men must compete with the cheap labor of women. Would you exalt your profession? Exalt those who labor with you. Would you make it more lucrative? increase the salaries of the women engaged in the noble work of educating our future presidents, senators, and congressmen. For a moment after this bombshell, there was complete silence. Then three men rushed down the aisle to congratulate her, telling her she had pluck, that she had hit the nail on the head. But the woman nearby glanced scornfully at her murmuring who can that creature be susan however had started a few women thinking and questioning and the next morning professor davies resplendent in his buff vest and blue coat with brass buttons opened the convention with an explanation i have been asked he said why no provisions have been made for female lecturers before this association and why ladies are not appointed on committees i will answer then in flowery metaphor he assured them that he would not think of dragging women from their pedestals into the dust beautiful beautiful murmured the women in their back rows but Mrs. Northrop of Rochester offered resolutions recognizing the right of women teachers to share in all the privileges and deliberations of the organization and calling attention to the inadequate salaries women teachers received. These resolutions were kept before the meeting by a determined group and finally adopted. Susan also offered the name of Emma Willard, as a candidate for vice-president, thinking the successful retired principal of the Troy Female Seminary, now interested in improving the public schools, might also be willing to lend a hand in improving the status of women in this educational organization. Mrs. Willard, however, declined the nomination, refusing to be drawn into Susan's rebellion. Susan, nevertheless, left the convention satisfied that she had driven an entering wedge into Professor Davies' male stronghold, and she continued battering at the stronghold whenever she had an opportunity. She meant to put women in office and to win approval for co-education and equal pay. Teachers' conventions, however, were only a minor part of her new crusade, plans for which were still simmering in her mind and developing from day to day. Going back to many of the towns where she had held temperance meetings, 
she found that most of the societies she had organized had disbanded because women lacked the money to engage speakers or to subscribe to temperance papers if they were married they had no money of their own and no right to any interest outside their homes unless their husbands consented discouraged she wrote in her diary as i passed from town to town i was made to feel the great evil of woman's entire dependency upon man for the necessary means to aid on any and every reform movement though i had long admitted the wrong i never until this time so fully took in the grand idea of pecuniary and personal independence it matters not how overflowing with benevolence towards suffering humanity may be the heart of women it avails nothing so long as she possesses not the power to act in accordance with these promptings women must have a purse of her own and how can this be so long as the wife is denied the right to her individual and joint earnings reflections like these caused me to see and really feel that there was no true freedom for women without the possession of all her property rights and that these rights could be obtained through legislation only and so the sooner the demand was made of the legislature the sooner would we be likely to obtain them End of chapter three